do that. And then at the end, uh, in the fall, we look to get in Philippians too. So I'm excited about um, these series. And, and I was thinking about this this morning. As we come before God's Word, uh, we have a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, what we are doing really as we hear God's Word preached is we hear God, God Himself. And God is a God who speaks and creates life. He's a God who speaks reality and truth and transforms things. And, and we need to hear His Word because the sad reality is that we all live in a world that is not quite truth and not the life. And, and in our sin and in our struggles, we, we, get, we lose our way at times. Uh, that's the reality for all of us. And yet God comes in His kindness and His truth and His holiness and His mercy and He speaks and He changes everything. He, he changes our perspective. He changes our lives. He, he comes in and He reorients us and transforms us. And so as we come to His Word, it's, it's not really a, it's not a lecture. This isn't a, a teaching on what the Scriptures uh, teach us. It is that, but it's more than that. We come before His Word because we want to hear from Him, because we need to hear from Him, because we live by His Word. And that's our prayer, to be our prayer. That's my prayer every Sunday as I preach, is that God Himself would speak, and He would do His work as He speaks. He would bring life. He would bring change. He would, he would work in such a way that we would find ourselves going out from this place uh, with our perspective of life and reality and our experience transformed by His Word. That's what he wants to do. So let's ask him to do that and even more this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Acts. Uh, This book is your very word. And Lord, there are certainly things to learn in it. Uh, There are situations, there's characters, it's a story, but it's more than just a story. It's your word. And you speak through your word and how we need your word. We need you. We live by your word. And without your word, we don't live. And Lord, for us this morning, we are experiencing life as your children, but we're also not experiencing life. We we struggle. We lose our way. So we ask you to come right now by the Holy Spirit because of your mercy and grace and speak to us. Would you help me to serve you and to serve your people in this way that you might be prominent, preeminent in this time? We look forward to what you will do. We ask you to do that. Be pleased. Be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at chapters 21 through 27 this morning. And that's seven chapters. So we're not going to read through all seven chapters. But we're going to, we're going to look at these chapters and learn from them and hit on some key themes. What I want to do to start, though, is just to look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Uh, and this is a, a picture of really what follows in the following chapters as well. So I think it's an appropriate place to start. Paul, as we know, has journeyed from, uh, from his work in Ephesus he, in the area. He went to Greece and Macedonia, and now he's going back to go to Jerusalem. So he's on this, this journey to Jerusalem, and that's where our story picks up in chapter 21, verse 1. He's left the Ephesian elders. We heard about that last week, and it says... And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed, went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. 
While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Acts chapter 21, 1 through 14. It's a section in this larger section that gives us a picture of what's going on. We see Paul resolutely set out to go to Jerusalem. We see people trying to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem and Paul refusing. He resolutely sets out to go up to Jerusalem. And if we follow the storyline through these seven chapters, we'll see that resolute attitude of Paul and where it leads him. And really it's a picture for us of the parallel between Paul's life and Jesus' life. Jesus himself resolutely set out to go to Jerusalem. To go there to redeem his people, to glorify his Father, to usher in and establish his eternal kingdom. And Paul, too, walks in the steps of Christ in these seven chapters and goes up to Jerusalem for the name of Christ. He goes up to Jerusalem. He walks in the steps of his Savior. He suffers with Jesus, walking in his steps. And he testifies to Jesus. He witnesses to Jesus. And this is a picture of Paul's life. It's a picture for us to understand his apostolic call and and the importance and legitimacy of that and and Luke's intentions probably with that as well for Paul facing trial. At the end of the book we learn about that. But it's more than that. It's more than just a picture of Paul's life. It's more than just an apologetic for Paul's apostolic ministry. It's a pattern for all believers as well. And to put it in a sentence describing Paul's life in these seven chapters, to treasure Christ is to suffer with Christ and to witness to Christ. To treasure Christ is to suffer with Christ and to witness to Christ. And the question through Paul's example to us is, will we do the same? Will we so treasure Christ that we walk with Him and suffer with Him and witness to Him? So those are our points today. So we're going to talk about treasuring Christ, we're going to talk about suffering with Christ, and we're going to talk about witnessing to Christ, learning from Paul's example. It's really important for us, as we are going to dig into how Paul suffers with Christ, how Paul walks in the steps of Jesus, and, and we'll look at the parallels between Paul and Jesus going up to Jerusalem in these seven chapters. But it's important before we address that, and before we look at how Paul witnesses to Christ in a remarkable way, in Jerusalem, we need to understand that behind all this is something else that's going on in Paul's life that so shaped him and so empowered him and so led him that he was able to do these things willingly, gladly. He was willing to say, stop breaking my heart with these things about not going to Jerusalem. I'm going there for the name of Christ. You see, Paul treasured Christ. Paul treasured Christ. Paul had encountered who Jesus is. He encountered Jesus. He had had his life changed by Jesus. He saw in Jesus the glory of God. Jesus Christ is Paul's boast. And because he gloried in Christ, because he found his all in all in Christ, because he knew that Christ had died for him and loved him, he was willing and able and even eager in a sense to suffer with him and to witness to him. We can't miss that point. We don't want to put one ahead of the other. If I merely laid out to you that Paul suffered with Christ and witnessed to Christ and we didn't learn how Paul treasured Christ, you would go from here, I think, discouraged. You would go from here perhaps convicted but unable to understand how you can possibly ever attempt to follow in Paul's footsteps as he followed in Christ's footsteps. Paul did these things because he saw Christ for who he is. And we too, if we are to do these things, we must see Christ for who He is. 
We're going to be studying Philippians in the fall, and, and, and I'm looking forward to it tremendously. One thing that Philippians does, it gives us a picture of Paul and who he is and how he understood life. And so in Philippians chapter 3, we have a wonderful picture of how Paul treasured Christ. You can turn there, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. We'll have it projected as well. But listen to what Paul says here, and, and I'm going to try to read it slowly so we hear it and think about it. Philippians chapter 3, I'll start in verse 7 and just read through verse 14. This is could be a message unto itself, but it's a picture of Paul's treasuring of Christ, so that's why I want to read it. He says, But whatever gain I had, speaking of his background in Judaism, his high achievements in Judaism, his high achievements among the, the nation in the, in the diaspora of Israel, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, for, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul traded all. He traded all that he had, and this man had a lot. He was from a wealthy family. He was from a family that had been granted Roman citizenship uh, by the Romans, a Jewish family in Tarsus. And, and, and that was most likely for some significant thing they had done. They were probably a very prestigious family in Tarsus. So he most likely was extremely wealthy. He had a, a high reputation uh, in Tarsus and, and in Israel as well. He was uh, the top student, the heir apparent, it looks like, under one of the top, if not the top, a rabbi, Gamaliel, in Israel. And so, so to be a rabbi in Israel was, was more than just to be a, a pastor of sorts. Uh, it was more than to, just to be a, a seminary professor of sorts. It was really to be like a senator as well. These rabbis uh, were very influential, very important. He was the top guy. If you, if you picture you know, Paul's, maybe a modern equivalent is, think of Paul like you would think of maybe one of the, the Kennedy descendants who's alive right now. But mix in with that, a Billy Graham descendant, and maybe mix in with that some intellectual family descendant, a Guinness, Os Guinness, or William F. Buckley descendant. So mix that all together, that's Paul. That's what he's like. He's got it all. And he has this background, and he is faultless in his Judaism. He's blameless in the law. And what that means is not that he never sinned, but that he practiced the law blamelessly. In other words, he brought the sacrifices. He was faithful. If there was a sin he was aware of, he followed through. With all the technicalities of the law, he was blameless. And you can fulfill the technicalities of the law. Paul was blameless. He had it all. He had the best the world could offer. He had the comforts of the world. He had the accolades of the world but he traded it all for the sake of Christ. Why? Why would he do that? Why would you trade all that? Why would you turn it all? In, in his particular situation, he had to trade it because to be in that position was to be, at that current time, opposed to Christ. So to follow Christ was to give up all those things. And he did it gladly. There was a process. We could look at that. and We studied that as we looked, at, looked uh, through Acts. But he did it. Why would he do it? Why would he trade all that? Because he knew what he had in Christ. And it says in Philippians 3, 
It was for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's so important for us to understand. This is what powered Paul. This is what led him in doing what he did. Now, he had a particular call. He had a very special call as, as an apostle in establishing the church and really doing something that no one else has done. Those apostles, that, that, that period, and what they did was very significant and unique. He had a unique call and, and, and that we will not reproduce, but, but he was an example otherwise. And it's important for us to understand if we are to follow in the steps of Christ, if we are to follow his example, if we're to, to model, uh, learn from his model, we must understand how important it is for us to know what we have in Christ. That's the power. That's the engine for the Christian life, to understand what we have in Christ. And that understanding comes two ways to us. It comes through the Word of God as we see who Christ is in the Word of God. And it comes through the Holy Spirit coming in and whispering to our minds and hearts, this is truth. This is true glory. This is what life is most, this is what life is about. This is what's most worthy. This is eternal value. This is infinite value. This is for you. So embrace Christ and find your life in Him. So as we look at the Word and the Spirit comes in and testifies to our heart uh, what this means, the treasure that Christ truly is, that is what gives us power to say, Yes, Lord, I'll go up to Jerusalem and suffer with you. Yes, Lord, I want to witness to you in all these things. We can survey Paul and his life and and look at the things that he said. Uh, I'm just going to throw a bunch of verses out there. And this is a a worthy study to look at how Paul regarded Christ, to slow down and meditate on these things. But just some verses as we go through this, describing as Paul describes Christ. He calls him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. He says later in that chapter, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, and he describes Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ Jesus is the very wisdom from God, the infinite, eternal God. It's the summation, the climax of His wisdom is Jesus Christ. And He is our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. And He is to be our boast. He's the Lord of glory, He says in 1 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 4, He says, uh, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God, the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Christ. To see an infinite glorious God is to see Christ. In Ephesians 1, He says, Jesus is Him who fills all in all. He fills all. He fills the universe. He's, He's... The one who fills all, he fills the church and he gives us fullness. He fills all in all. Ephesians 3, he he speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. He prays that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Colossians chapter 1, he, he, he breaks into this celebration of Jesus in verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Paul celebrates who Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1. Paul gloried in Christ. He knew what he had in Christ. Now Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. He was steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. Probably, I I don't know, but probably had memorized maybe the entirety of the Old Testament. They they memorized the, the Pharisees and the leaders, memorized large sections. Certainly the Pentateuch, the first five books, they would have by memory. The Psalms, um, Proverbs, uh, a little side note, actually, a lot of the Psalms and Proverbs, uh, some of the Proverbs are designed, actually, for memory. That's the intent, the way that they're designed in the original languages. There's memory devices built into them. Psalm 119, actually, is, is built to be memorized. 
Um, it's alphabetical in Hebrew. Uh, so these guys knew the Word. He knew the Word, and he knew about God. He, he would have known all the promises. He would have known that God was the Creator. He would have known that God was holy beyond comprehension. He would have known that God was the Redeemer of His people, uh, seen through the redemption from, from Egypt. He would have known God as judge. He would have known that God dwelt in unapproachable light. He probably would have trembled at the picture in the book of Isaiah when Isaiah encounters the Lord in the temple. And the seraphim, the mighty gargantuan angels are there. And the glory of God, the, the blinding light of God is there on the throne. He's there in unapproachable light. And, and these, these mighty angels are, are worshiping God and, and, and singing and, 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 and proclaiming loudly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God who was and is and is to come. And, and the, the temple shakes and, and Paul, uh, Isaiah sees the glory of God, and, and his reaction is, I am undone before this infinite, holy God. And he would have known that story of how there was atonement for, for Isaiah and commission for Isaiah. He would have known that God had raised up a king and that there was a future king to come to rule and to establish an eternal kingdom. But the problem for Paul up to his conversion early on in Acts is that he knew all these things, but he failed to see that Jesus Christ is the summation of them all. In Christ is the fullness of the glory of God. He is the fulfiller of the promises of God. He is that King. He is that Holy One. He is that One through whom all things were made. He is the actual Redeemer of His people. He is the redemption Himself. He is... God who dwells in unapproachable light and yet has come and had mercy on his people. He had failed to see that, but in that moment on that road to Damascus, when he was knocked down and the Lord spoke to him, by the power of the Spirit, all of a sudden, something clicked. And we don't know the process for Paul, when and where and how much he comprehended at first. But Paul knew then and I believe grew in his knowledge that Christ is the glory of God, the center of the Scriptures and all of history, and is to be our treasure and our boast and the very center and power of our lives in every way. That's, that's what we're called to. That's who Christ is. That's what it is to be a Christian, to grasp that Christ is God. Christ is the glory of God for us. And we are called in that revelation to be transformed and to treasure Him. So that we can say with Paul like he does in Philippians 1, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. Facing his death is what he's speaking of. I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And, and lest we think that gain is something different than Christ, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. That's the gain. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is saying, for me to live is Christ. To live now is Christ. To live now is to serve Him and to serve others in His name. And it's all for Him. That's what to live now is about. And if I die, it's gain. How is it, how is it gain? Because I'll be with Christ. So, in a, in a way, he's saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is Christ. To live is Christ, to, to, to serve Him, to dwell with Him. And when I die, I get to be with Him. That's how he understood his life. And that's how we must understand our lives. This suffering with Christ, this witnessing to Christ that he talks about in Philippians 3 and we see in the book of Acts is, is made possible because for him to live is Christ, to die is Christ. He had centered his life on Christ and found his all in all in Christ. He supremely treasured Christ and sought to celebrate and extend His glory in all that He did, sought to fully rely on Christ in all things, and through preaching Christ, to extend the glory of God for the joy of all people. 
And he sought to suffer for Christ for the fame of his name. So he can be resolute in going to Jerusalem because of this. And when people tried to, to dissuade him, he knew by the Spirit he was called to walk in the steps of Christ to Jerusalem. And he said, forget it, guys. You're breaking my heart. It, it affected him. He loved these people. We've seen that. But he was ready to suffer for Christ, for his glory. And so that's what we learn here. As we look through the life of Paul in Acts chapter 21 to 27, he treasured Christ and therefore he suffered with Christ. And he witnessed to Christ. And so if we were to trace through these seven chapters and study them carefully, we would see multiple parallels between the life of Christ and the life of Paul. And Luke does this on purpose. Luke makes these parallels. If you, you can follow in the Gospel of Luke and then follow in the, in the book of Acts, which is Luke's second volume, he makes these parallels for a purpose. Multiple purposes. I think part of it is he wants to, he wants to affirm the legitimate apostle apostolic ministry of Paul, that Paul is called of God to be an apostle. He wants to probably uh, inform Theophilus and maybe others if, if they represent uh, powerful Roman Christians that it, they might take a stand for Paul in his trial. That might be part of it as well. But it's also to lay out for us an example for us as well. For we also are called to walk in the steps of Christ, to suffer with him. So we can trace the patterns, the, the parallels in, in this three times. Paul is, the sufferings of Paul are predicted. The sufferings in Jerusalem are predicted for Paul. First with the Ephesian elders, um, and then with the disciples in Tyre. So in the Ephesian elders, Paul predicts it. The disciples in Tyre say, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going you're gonna to suffer. And then Agabus says, don't go to Jerusalem. Well, he says, you're going to suffer. And then everyone else says, don't go to Jerusalem. Three times. Three times. The Savior as well, there are three times in the book of Luke where he predicts his sufferings. Luke 9, two, two instances in Luke 9, 22 and 44, and then Luke 18, 31 to 34. And, and we'll just look at one of them real quick. It says, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Jesus himself also set out resolutely to suffer in Jerusalem. So did Paul. In Luke chapter 9, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face. Now, King James, I think, says, set his face like flint. Hardened his face. Said, I'm, to, to go to Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going there to suffer. I'm going there to die and redeem God's people. I'm going there to fulfill what God has for me. Paul as well resolutely set out to go up to Jerusalem. Later on, we see too that the Jewish leaders plotted uh, in a conspiracy to capture Jesus, they also plotted to capture Paul. He went up to Jerusalem, it says in Acts 23, when it was the day the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There are more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And then later on, uh, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, Festus, current leader, asking as a favor against Paul that he be summoned to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So there were these plots to take Paul's life just like for Jesus. And Paul was handed over to the Gentiles like Christ was handed over to the Gentiles. So there are these parallels. There are these parallels in the life of Paul that we see clearly. And, and what Luke does in chapters 1 through 20. 21 through 27, is he slows down to look at these things, very much like he slows down to look at the, the life of Christ in Passion Week. Everything slows down, and it's about Paul going to Jerusalem to suffer, and then Paul witnessing in Jerusalem, like in Luke. And the lesson with that is not only that Paul was unique and called to these things as an apostle, but we too as well. And you may think, really, are we? I mean, Paul was unique. I mean, Paul was told that he would suffer for the gospel, and, and that, that's different. He's an apostle. I'm not called to that. I'm not called to suffer. And I could show you multiple scriptures that say, yes, you are. To be a Christian is to suffer with Christ, and there's no way around that. And when we share Christ with somebody, we don't want to avoid that reality. To, to be a Christian is to suffer with Christ. Now, we have... Tremendous assets in that suffering. We have the one who has overcome the world, who's in us and with us. 
And he's going to give us the power and the ability. So we don't want to forget that part. We don't say to be a Christian is to suffer tough and just walk away from someone. We preach Christ to them. We talk about Christ and how he has overcome the world and how he lives in us and loves us and he rules all and he's going to be with us. And in those moments of need and suffering, he's going to be there and he's going to work through it. We preach that. But we must not deny that to be a Christian is to suffer with Christ. Paul says, Romans 8, very clearly, the Spirit himself himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We love this part. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Yahoo! I love that. I'm an heir. And then it says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We can't disconnect that. To know Christ is to suffer with Him. Why? Why? What, why is that? Now that's a long answer I can't answer entirely right now. But let me give you a few things. The reasons for the why, very, very briefly. We live in a fallen, broken world. It's broken. It's fallen. Sin. The fall of man. The man is... Man in, um, and speaking of men and women, were created by God to rule over the world, under the Lord, to, to steward the world in, as we walked in faith. That's the call of Adam. That's what the, will be reestablished when Christ returns. And yet we fell. When we fell as regents over the world, the world and really the whole universe fell in sin. Sin has affected things. It it has affected us. It's affected the world. We live in this fallen, broken world with fallen, broken bodies, with, with souls and bodies affected by sin. And sin is, is, is the, the sad reality of life apart from God, and it's affected all things. And that's what we live in. So to, so to, be, to belong to the Lord is, is to be called to, to live differently than this fallen, broken world and to live in this fallen, broken world. And, and there's just no way around of those things conflicting. We belong to the Lord. We're called to find our life in Him. We're to live in Him, yet we're, we're sinners and we're surrounded by sinners and we're in a broken world. And, and there's, there's sin that... There's direct and indirect consequences of sin. There's evil systems. There's corrupt cultures. There's just broken systems in the world. There's evil that, that is just non-personal as well, in a sense. There's tsunamis and earthquakes. Situations. So to live in the world as a believer, is to suffer with Christ. But take heart. He's overcome the world. Christ came and lived in this broken world and was not defeated by it, but defeated it. He took, the wor- in a sense, the worst the world could give. He took it and He overcame it in victory and was raised from the dead and is at the right hand of God. He overcame this world. And to be in Him is to overcome this world. To live in it, to suffer, but to overcome. And suffering in a unique way demonstrates to to all of creation the power of God, the power of God in Christ for us to overcome the world. It demonstrates that the worst the world throws at us will not defeat us. It demonstrates the power of the gospel, the power of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God. Suffering in a unique way puts on display the full power of the gospel. It shows it. And the world can't deny it. Do you know what the word martyr means in the original language? We understand martyr now to be someone who dies for their faith. Do you know the word literally means witness? Why would they call someone who dies for their faith a witness? Because when they die for their faith, when they suffer to the point of losing their life, they they demonstrate clearly that there's something more important than my very life even, that I'm not willing to trade away for comfort. There's something better I have that I will not exchange for all the comforts and all the accolades of the world. And so we're witnessing to the reality of Jesus Christ who has overcome the world. And suffering does that uniquely. And we are called as His people to suffer with Him and to overcome the world in and through that suffering. 
Tom Schreiner, in his book on the Apostle Paul, it's a biography of sorts on Paul and his life, says this. It says, During the present evil age, believers face suffering, pressures, and afflictions. And he's drawing this summary from all of Paul's writing. Such sufferings, however, are designed to bring thanksgiving to God, who so powerfully rescues his people in and through the painful circumstances of life. Being led to death and suffering is a means by which the fragrance of the gospel of Christ is wafted into the world. The treasure of the gospel is encapsulated in weak and suffering vessels so that all will see that the power comes from God and not from us, not from Paul. That's the lesson of Paul's life. And Paul is glad to suffer for Christ for that reason. Are you? Am I? Not that we enjoy suffering in and of itself, but what it does and the unique ability it does to show the value of Christ. I just uh, think of the many people I've watched suffer and die who are Christians. And to watch the statement that is made as they they look to the Lord in those moments. And that's the scariest thing for anybody, to die. That's the thing that any human being fears the most. And when, when people face that suffering and they look to the Lord and that shines through, that is glorious. And that has strengthened me as I've watched people do that, die in the Lord. It has strengthened me. It's often at those moments that, that we shine for the Lord the most in those moments of suffering. To treasure Christ, to walk with Christ, is to suffer with Christ. Final point. Paul treasures Christ, he suffers with Christ, and he witnesses to Christ. It's important as we look at the life of Paul and our own lives to understand that that the sufferings of Christ are unique and different from our sufferings. They are sufferings, and our sufferings are sufferings. They're, of course, both sufferings, but there's a, a fundamental difference between the two. When Christ suffered, Philippians 2 teaches us that he suffered, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That his suffering was to the point of death on a cross. So his, his obedience was to the point of death on the cross. His, his obedience was shown fully for what it really was, that he would go to a cross to die. He would, go, he would be obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, to be obedient to the Father... Because in, in, in before time began, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, the Triune God together, uh, came up with a plan by which they would, would glorify and show all the qualities of who they are and redeem their people. They came up with this plan that the Son would suffer and die on the cross and pay for sins. That the Son would, the son would be obedient to the point of death on the cross. And, and, and part of his obedience was demonstrated that he would be willing to go through what was the worst physical torture, basically, uh, systematic physical torture you could go through. And that was great obedience to do that. To say, Father, I want to accomplish this plan to the point where I'm willing to undergo physical suffering. And he, and he did. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? His obedience was shown that he faced the cross and, and what was in the cross. He looked at that cup, a metaphorical cup, the, the night before, He looked what was in that cup. He knew that in that cup was the holy justice, the very wrath of God. And wrath of God doesn't mean wrath like yours and mine. That is unjust, usually. But the wrath of God is His holy holy determination and disposition to, to, to deal with sin. And he knew that going to that cross was to not only die physically in a horrible death, but to bear the holy justice of the infinite God. And so as he looked in that cup, he, he was in anguish. He sweat drops of blood. For that cup not only held the worst form of physical death, but the worst form of spiritual death anyone would ever face. In that cup was the wrath of God for the sins, all the sins of his people. When Christ went to that cross... The Father put on Christ your sins. Think about that. This is God, never known sin, perfectly holy, eternal. And your sins, those thoughts that you've had, those thoughts of envy, anger, jealousy, perversion, impurity, those actions, those betrayals of others, those things that you've done, 
Those things that you haven't done, the things that you knew you should have done, God called you to do and you refused and didn't do for whatever reason. All those things, all the horrors, all the particulars, all for all of your whole life. And now multiply that times billions. All those sins the Holy One bore on Himself and then the Father poured out justice on Him for you. He poured out His holy wrath on Christ. And He suffered on that cross unlike anyone ever, ever, ever will suffer. You cannot compare the sufferings of Christ to our sufferings in that sense. There's just no comparison. In a sense, He suffered infinitely on the cross for our sins. There's a difference between our sufferings and His. And His sufferings were, on one hand, to demonstrate His perfect obedience. Philippians 2 tells us He was obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's what is encapsulated in that whole sentence. It's perfect obedience. And the Father received His obedience as perfect obedience. Christ never sinned. He obeyed to the point of death on the cross. His holiness and obedience is unfathomable. And that's part of what His sufferings demonstrate. And also His sufferings, so they they were meritorious. They earned something. They earned approval from the Father. That's an important point. His sufferings were meritorious. They earned something. And they were offered up He offered Himself up to pay for our sins. So they were salvific. They rescued us from our sins. So His sufferings earned something and they rescued us. Our sufferings don't earn perfect obedience. There's a reward for them, indeed, but they don't earn perfect obedience. And they don't save people from their sins. So there's a difference. There's a difference, but there's similarities. We are called to suffer with Christ, and we are, we are called to witness to Him. And so it's interesting as you follow the parallels here. As you follow the parallels with Christ, you see that Christ goes to Jerusalem. He resolutely sets Himself to go to Jerusalem, and He dies on that cross, and He rises, he rises again. So He suffers for the purpose of lifting, being lifted up as the only Savior and Lord. He suffers for the... the ultimate goal to be lifted up, to draw all men to himself. So he suffers to witness to himself. Paul suffers, goes to Jerusalem, goes through all this, to witness to Christ. So his pointing through it all in Acts chapter 21 to 27 is to suffer to point to Jesus unlike Jesus who suffers to win our salvation, to be perfectly obedient, and to ultimately point to himself, the one who's worthy. And so another aspect of this section of Scripture is, is how Paul witnesses to Christ. And, uh, and there's just wonderful things here. Wonderful things. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, and, and Luke is just hammering this point of him suffering and witnessing. And, and we see multiple times Paul witnessing to others. It's incredible. In, in, in Acts chapter 21, later on, he, gets, he goes to the temple. He goes to the temple to worship. He goes to the temple to, to bring unity between the Jew and Gentile church. He goes to the temple to bring an offering from the Gentiles. And, and there are Jews in the temple area who are from the city of Ephesus, from Asia. Uh, and, and they know Paul, and they see him in the temple, and they, and they stir up a riot, and there's this riot, and they grab Paul, they pull him out of probably the inner courts of the temple, and they, they, they're on Paul, and they start beating him to death. They're beating him to death. They're trying to kill him. And a Roman tribune, who, it's like a colonel basically, who's in the barracks over that, looking down, someone tells him whatever, he, sends, he goes down actually himself with a platoon of soldiers, rescues Paul, and they have to carry Paul, and it, it, it may even be that they had to carry him over their heads because the crowd is, is trying to get at him to kill him. And so they're carrying him out, they get him to the steps, and they're carrying him up the steps, and, and Paul says to the, the tribune uh, in his native language, the, the tribune's native language most likely uh, in Greek, uh, he, he says, um, says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Can you imagine that? He says, stop, let me talk to these people. I beg you, he says, I beg you to let me speak to the people. And then he starts his address, he switches to Hebrew, because they're, they're Jews, or Aramaic, and he says, first, first words, brothers and fathers. That is insane. That is insane. 
If I were there, I would say, I beg you, get me out of this place. Paul says, I beg you, let me talk to them. And then he, he's able, I mean, these people just try to kill him. He's probably all bruised and bleeding and everything. And he says, brothers and fathers, he wants to share Christ with these people. He wants them to know about the one whom they are persecuting. He wants them to know about Christ. And so what you see with Paul there, and then later he does the same sort of thing. He, he's before Felix, the governor, and then Festus. What a name, Festus, huh? He's before Festus, the next governor. And, and makes me, is it Uncle Festus from the Adams family or something? Sorry. Um, and he testifies to them. He goes before King Agrippa, who's the king over the area as well. And every opportunity he gets, he's telling people about Jesus. This one whom he treasures, he's telling them about Jesus because he glories in Jesus. And he knows, and, and he's compassionate for these people to know Christ. He knows that Christ is the all in all, and it's what they need. They need to be reconciled to God through Christ. He is their king, their legitimate king. He wants them to know him. He knows the very best thing he can do for these people is to tell them about Jesus. And so every opportunity he has in his suffering, he points to Jesus. So he's before King Agrippa. And Festus is there, and, and the bank can come up as we close. Festus is there, and uh, Festus is a Roman, probably schooled in, uh, in um, I'm blanking, on uh, skepticism. I forget that whole thing. Um, so, uh, whatever. It's a philosophy of skepticism. And so Festus is there, and, um, and listening to Paul, and, and King Agrippa is there. And, and just picture this. Paul is there. He's in chains, okay? He's in chains. He's probably in some sort of court, and there's this... Uh, prestigious array of officials, of Roman officials and Jewish officials. And Paul is there with them. And he's testifying. And Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. The word he uses is maniac. Paul, you're a maniac. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He says, I mean, you don't want to hear that from the chief governor, right? You're, you're sharing about Jesus in the middle of it. He says, you're out of your mind. This learning is driving you mad. And Paul, instead of saying, you know, Festus, what a stupid name that is. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Paul doesn't say that. This is, listen to what he says. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words for the king, now he's talking to King Agrippa, who's the chief guy there. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, now he addresses the king. He's bold. This is very bold. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What an amazing, amazing man. What an amazing, amazing heart to share Christ, to proclaim Him, to glory in Him, to touch others' lives with the most important message they ever will hear. That he's willing to, to lay aside his, his, his suffering, to lay aside temptation, maybe to pride, to lay it all aside, that he might testify to Christ, that he might touch people's lives with Christ. He treasured Christ. And it drove him to, to be willing and glad to suffer for him, that he might point to Christ to witness to him. This is Paul's life. And I want us to be undone by his example. I want us to be undone by his example. I don't want to go away from this truth, and I don't want to go away from this message, this section of Scripture, these truths, just being informed. informed being informed is good, but I want to be changed. I want to be undone. I want this example, that just that passage in Acts 26, to convict me of my selfishness, to convict me of my laziness, to convict me of my love for comfort more than Christ and His people, to convict me of my love of men's opinions more than their souls.
to be convicted of my blindness and my inability to see Christ and what He is worth, that He is worth any and all suffering that I might go through. He is worth it, and He'll be there with me. That He is glorious, and He is the all in all for me and the world. I want to be convicted, and I want to be empowered by Him, by the power of the Spirit, to be like Paul. God is calling us to be like Paul, to treasure Christ, to say with him, I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry each of us has received, the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. May God convict us, strengthen us, lead us, and may we witness to Him. And may He turn our worlds upside down. May He fill this room a hundred times over with people that are touched by our witness that comes from weak, suffering vessels who hold eternal glory inside. Whether we suffer much or little, whatever it might be, may we be like Paul. May we treasure Christ and gladly suffer with Him and witness to Him. That's the call. Will you hear the voice of the Lord through His Word and trust Him and follow? Let's pray. Lord, we ask You to come and help us Lord, it can be overwhelming looking at the life of Paul and we we can be tempted to just come under burden and guilt or we can be tempted to think, well, that's Paul, that's not me. But Lord, you, you call us to this. So change our thinking. Help us to understand that it all flows from you, Jesus. You gave your all for us. You've come and rescued us and you are our all in all. You're to be our everything. May we treasure you. May we see of what worth you are and treasure you and see ourselves changed in that, that we would gladly follow and suffer and testify to you. And Lord, would you produce fruit through this? As the seed goes into the ground and dies, may it produce many seeds. May there be many, may there be hundreds and thousands of lives and beyond that are touched through our church and your people in this area. We pray in Christ's name.